Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 95. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 20 through 23 and follow with a consideration of personal attacks and prophetic rage. The city-state of Ashdod has rebelled twice against the Assyrian king Sargon II. Word of the first round in 713 BCE comes to us from the annals of Sargon, uncovered in his capital city, Dor Sharuchin, or present-day Khorsabad in Iraq. Quote, Azor, king of Ashdod, plotted in his heart not to offer tribute, and to the kings in his region he sent hateful words against Assyria. After this malicious act, I revoked his rule over his people and installed Achimiti, his younger brother. But even after pacifying the city, Ashdod rises up again in revolt in the words of the king himself, or some PR flack close to him, we have the following account, quote, With heart raging, I did not wait for my armies to muster, and I did not prepare my camp. With my heroes, who even in a safe place never leave my side, we went up against Ashdod. Without any help from neighboring kings of Egypt, Ashdod falls quickly to the Assyrians. It was at this time that God tells Yeshayahu to strip down and walk the earth naked and barefoot. The three-year stint of nudity and shoelessness is a symbol to the people of Egypt and Cush or Ethiopia. Assyria will reach them too, conquer them, strip them bare, and enslave them. And this will be particularly devastating to the folks living on the coast because they look to Egypt and Ethiopia for support and rescue, but that help now will never come. Chapter 21 begins with a pronouncement about the desert of the sea but includes two additional pronouncements about Duma and the Steppe. The context for these prophetic pronouncements are not clear, but they are located in the same place, the desert east of Israel, and scholars are not clear if Hishayahu is the author of all three. The first refers to places that were added to the map after Yeshayahu's day, and in fact it might fall into the same period as the previous prophecy about Babylon from chapter 13, which also had a series of anachronistic references. Yeshayahu would not have been alive to see the Medes conquer Babylon. But what about the wilderness of the sea? This phrase is rendered just as wilderness in the Greek Septuagint, and in the Isaiah scroll discovered in the Judean desert, which features prominently in the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum, it is rendered as Masa Davar Yam, which I guess would read pronouncement of the words of the sea or things of the sea. And Yeshayahu foretells that the enemy will come as suddenly as storms in the Negev, and, quote, the betrayer is betraying, the ravager is ravaging. The awfulness to Yeshayahu are like labor pains, and he describes how it doubles him over in pain. So the prophet continues, God tells him, quote, go set a watchman, and when that watchman sees riders coming, he will know that Babylon has fallen. Olympus is fallen. Olympus is fallen. The pronouncement about Duma is a curious one because it is not clear who or what Duma is. Could it be a place, the name of a people, or a play on the words for Dumama, which is silence? Considering the imagery that follows, which sets the watchman in the stillness of the night, perhaps, but there is another alternative. The Duma refers to Edom because of the repetitive structure of the prophecy which places Duma as a synonym for Seir. 
Finally, Yeshayahu pronounces about the Arabian tribes who flee for their lives from the Assyrian onslaught. Chapter 22 begins with another pronouncement about the Valley of Vision, which, based on the parallel references in upcoming verses, refers to Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem is a city of hills, not valleys. And this city is a city full of people, a joyful place full of revelry, eating and drinking. But it's also a city that knocks down houses to fortify its walls and build reservoirs in case of siege. It is a prideful city that trusts more in its own devices to save it rather than God. Perhaps these urban improvements allude to the fortifying and tunnel-digging work of Chizkiyahu between 701 and 705 BCE, but Yeshayahu is clear. All of these will not save you when the time comes. Yeshayahu then shifts to another subject, another prophecy, this time about a person named Shevna, who is identified as being, quote, in charge of the palace, or, quote, a steward. This really sticks out here because the previous prophecy about the city could just as well fit along with the prophecies about Ashdod and Babylon, but then again, perhaps Shevna has some administrative connection to the goings-on in the city mentioned previously. Who is Shevna? The first book of Chronicles, chapter 15, mentions a Shevnayahu, which also appears on seals that have been uncovered in digs in the West Bank from the time of Yeshayahu all the way up to the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE. In Silwan, a burial cave was discovered, dated roughly at the time of Chizkiyahu, with the following partial inscription at its entrance, Yahu Asher al-Habayit, or Yahu in charge of the palace, which, if it was referring to Shevnayahu, would drive home Yeshayahu's comment that, quote, you have hewn out a tomb for yourself here. Chapter 23 returns to the national stage with a pronouncement about Tzor, or Tyre, or as it's pronounced in Arabic, Sur. And for this pronouncement, Yeshayahu has words about Judah as much as he has for Tzor, and to the people of Tzor, and the Sidonians, and the sailors of Tarshish, the message is also clear. You cannot withstand the Assyrians. God is using the Assyrians as a lash to whip those who deserve a good thrashing. <laughs> And no one will escape, except for Jerusalem, of course. Yeshayahu's talk of the ships of Tarshish being laid waste reminds me of Roy Batty's last words in Blade Runner. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. But unlike the replicant who fades away like tears in the rain, Sor will be restored. It might take generations, but Sor will rise again. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration.
We all have to share this planet, and sometimes the needs and wants of one person come into conflict with the needs and wants of another. And there are many ways for this conflict to be resolved. Yes, well, there, there's that way. Expressed more eloquently by Prussian general and military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, <clears throat> quote, War is not an independent phenomenon, but the continuation of politics by different means. But the least painful way is persuasion, and often various techniques are applied to persuade someone else to go along with what you want. And many of these techniques are quite shady. They're often used by politicians, folks in marketing, the media, anyone who has a vested interest in convincing you that their need should take priority over yours, or that you should have a new need, theirs. Here's an example. The appeal to common belief. You make a claim and support it by saying that most people accept the claim is true. Sort of like, Well, I thought it was very good. I thought the moderators, Brett, did a very good job also. But I, I was very happy, and a lot of people said I won, and I'm very happy about that. It's always nice to hear that. But many... Or here's another example, the appeal to anonymous authority. You make a claim and support it by alluding to an unspecified source. Kind of like, Last week I read 2,300 Humvees. These are big vehicles. These two examples of shady techniques conveniently fall into a single category, the logical fallacy. Why do we fall for this crap? Well, the answer is quite simple, because there are a lot of things going on in our heads at any given moment, and shiny things are distracting. Oh, yes! Bruh! My name is Doug. I have just met you, and I love you. My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel! And the logical fallacy is not just shiny, it's something shiny in sheep's clothing. Did, did that make sense? Let me try that again. A logical fallacy is a trick of thought. It gives the impression of having substance, but is completely unsubstantiated. One of the most potent yet most fallacious uses of logic is the ad hominem attack, where instead of attacking what the person says, you attack the person. The Wikipedia entry on ad hominem lists three kinds of ad hominem attacks. Bo Bennett, author of Logically Fallacious, adds a fourth, abusive ad hominem, where the attack is irrelevant to the argument made, but we'll set that vindictive one aside. The first is ad hominem to quoque, or... ...as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, that the, the Russians have engaged in... Say, for example, you're a parent telling your teenage child that smoking is bad and that you should never start smoking because it's a crappy habit and it's really tough to kick and you'll regret it. And then the child responds, but you smoked. The but you smoked to quoque response is logically false because it does not disprove the premise. Just the opposite. The parent who once smoked is uniquely qualified to speak about how crappy a habit it is and how hard it is to kick. Number two is a circumstantial ad hominem, which works similarly. I attempt to attack a claim by asserting that the person making the claim is making it simply out of self-interest. So back to another smoking example. I assert that the tobacco lobbyist's claims about smoking not causing cancer should be discounted because the lobbyist works for big tobacco. This sounds like a good argument. But it's actually a fallacy because the lobbyist's motivation for making the claim does not make the claim automatically false. 
If I'm an anti-smoking advocate, my claims about the awfulness of smoking should not be discounted either because of my advocacy work. Everyone makes claims out of self-interest. Number three is guilt by association. The last kind of ad hominem attack where you attack a person because of the similarity between their views and other proponents of the argument. For example, though clan boy and wrinkly racist David Duke is a vocal and ardent supporter of Donald Trump, one cannot assume that every Trumpy is a racist or that Trump himself is a racist. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Okay, well, I did say we cannot assume guilt by association, but we can assume guilt. You know what I mean. In Isaiah chapter 22, Shevna is the subject of a blistering verbal barrage and specific threats against him and his station. There are perhaps three examples where a prophet targets a specific person for prophetic rage. Yirmiyahu prophesizes about Pashchur and King Jehoiakim. Amos prophesizes about Amatsia, the priest of Bethel, and we'll explore those examples in a later episode. But what did Shevna do to incur the wrath of Yeshayahu? With the sequence of prophecies, first about the Valley of Visions slash Jerusalem, the sated, complacent city, and then Shevna, perhaps Yeshayahu is commenting on Shevna's role in making Jerusalem so fattened, so lackadaisical, and so smug. Or perhaps Ishayahu doesn't like his social climbing in the form of constructing a lavish tomb. Or perhaps Ishayahu doesn't like the fact that Shevna's a foreigner. Quote, what have you here and whom have you here? Or in other words, who the fuck is that guy? Who the fuck is that? Except that, as we said before, the name Shevna does not indicate foreignness. It appears in other places in the Tanakh and belongs to very much Jewish men. So I guess it's Shevna's pretentiousness and social climbing that rubs Yeshayahu the wrong way more than Shevna's policies, a classic ad hominem. And so when Yeshayahu describes what accolades will be showered upon Shevna's replacement Eliakim, one can almost imagine how each of these honors will be torn away from Shevna. Shevna's robe, Shevna's girdle, the ceremonial key he used to carry, all given to Eliakim because of Shevna's unbridled ego. But the thing is that, according to Yeshayahu, Shevna deserves what he gets. So I guess the ad hominem attack lands. And it also lands most of all because, quote, for it is the Lord who has spoken. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 96 when we continue in the book of Isaiah with chapters 24 through 27.